Pro teams have millions to spend, and they don't always spend them wisely. But when it comes to a great shave, you don't have to shell out tons of cash. Harry's saw customers getting ripped off by the shaving industry, with overpriced, underperforming products, and decided to do something better. They found their own way to make beautifully designed razors for a fraction of the price of the other big brands, so you never wonder if you overpaid. Harry's shaving products look great, and the weighted handle makes shaving feel great too. I like to keep my beard neat, and Harry's always leaves me with a smooth yet crisp shave. Harry's quality is top-notch, thanks to German-engineered blades made in their own factory that stay sharp longer. You can get a five-blade razor, weighted handle, foaming shave gel, and a travel cover for just three bucks at harrys.com slash bluewire. And Harry's has the highest customer satisfaction in the shaving industry, plus a convenient subscription option that you can cancel at any time. Getting the best doesn't mean spending the most when you shave with Harry's. Get started with a $13 trial set for just $3 at harrys.com slash bluewire. That's harrys.com slash bluewire for a $3 trial set. Welcome back, everyone, to the 18th episode of the Take the Points podcast. I'm your co-host, Tate Seth, joined as always by Arjun Menon. Before we get into the games, we have some big news to announce. Uh, For those who didn't see it on Twitter, we are joining the Blue Wire podcast network. So the good news is that the production of this podcast and the guests we're going to be able to bring on are going to grow. We're going to have access to a lot of cool stuff that we're really excited to share. The bad news for the listeners, uh, all of you guys out there, is that there will be ads that eventually get put in. Uh, you know, it shouldn't be too many where it r- ruins the production, but we just appreciate everyone listening that, you know, allowed us to have this opportunity. Arjun, how do you kind of feel about this news? Yeah, no, it's awesome, dude. Like, we only started this podcast like three months ago, four months ago, and now we're already getting picked up by a podcast network, like a bigger one. And, um, you know, I, I'm familiar with Blue Wire, my my Chargers podcast that I'm a part of is part of this network also. So I know we're in good hands. And, you know, the now that, you know, we kind of have to get some of our views up, we, we are able to expand our episodes to two a week. Um, and honestly, this will be a little bit better because we'll be able to go a little more in depth in reviewing the games and also previewing the games instead of and also talking about more games instead of having kind of having to rush through everything just to make sure our episodes stay under like an hour 10. Yeah, that's true. That's uh, it'll give us a lot more space to work with. Um, so, yeah, we'll we'll be doing our like week, you know, previous week reviews in the first episodes that will come out Wednesdays like they've been coming out. And then we'll also be able to do our week previews uh, in an episode that comes out Friday. So it won't be so condensed into one episode will allow us to do a lot of new stuff. Uh, on this episode today, we'll be you know doing our week five review, giving out awards, and bringing back the unhinged tweet of the week segment because there are so many bad tweets about analytics that we have to bring it back. Uh, but before we get on into all of that, let's review our bets from last week. Yeah, so also like the other thing with like us doing our, our preview on Fridays, like it's it, not only have our bets not been doing that great, but now it's like, we're betting we're recommending bets on friday so the lines are already probably as efficient as they're going to be so it's a it's a little bit tricky to do that but but yeah just another another brutal week another you know fade ttp um where our bet of the week loses so uh we gave out seahawks plus five and a half seahawks were winning in the fourth quarter and they failed a two-point conversion the saints go down and score 
and they're up by they're up by five and they convert their two-point conversion so if you know saints or seahawks were able to convert the two-pointer we'd we'd have won our bet but just uh just another rough week for our bet of the week but we did cash our browns plus three got some closing line value there thankfully that it landed on uh, Browns plus two, basically, and our Eagles minus three first half paid off because the Cardinals can't score in the first half. Our last bet, which was a five point teaser, like technically, so it's an L, I think, but technically, like, I think it should be like a half a unit L because I said Seahawks plus ten and a half was a, like my my preferred teaser with Niners minus one and a half, but I didn't want to double dip on the Seahawks. So I gave out Chiefs minus two and a half as a teaser with 49ers and Chiefs only one by one. So, you know, technically we lost that one because the official bet was Chiefs Niners. But, you know, I did recommend Seahawks plus ten and a half. So hopefully I helped some people cash there if they tailed. <laughs> yeah, no, thanks. Thanks for revealing that. And yeah, you know, it's just it's just made the the lock of the week right now is, is what it seems like. Um, but yeah, we'll, we'll get to that on the Friday episode. Uh, well, well, you know, we can start with the the Thursday night game. Um, and I don't really want, you know, want to talk too much about the game. <laughs> there isn't much to talk about, but like, <laughs> I just kind of want to talk about like where Russell Wilson is at a whole. And I was thinking about it a lot this past week. And I think it's like kind of crazy that the year that the Seahawks decided to let Russell Wilson cook was the 2020 season where they always had this pretty low early down what run rate. Uh, early or low pass rate over expected 2020, they decide, all right, we're going to let him air it out. It's what he wants to do. It's what a lot of people, you know, on Twitter and the media want to see, uh, you know, the, the passing has been so much more efficient than the running and, you know, we're, we're going to let him pass and they lead the league in, you know, pass attempts and all that stuff uh, at the beginning of the 2020 season. And he looks like an MVP candidate through the first nine weeks, but coincidentally the Rams hired Brandon Staley that year to run this too high shell that leaves the middle of the field open, right? When you play middle of the field open coverage, you're playing in a too high shell most of the time. And so the Seahawks have to play the Rams three times in nine games in the back half of the 2020 season. And Russell Wilson just gets absolutely destroyed in all three of those games. The Seahawks offense doesn't move the ball at all. And it's because he doesn't throw over the middle of the field, right? Like no matter what offensive coordinator he's had, um, whether he's been in Seattle or, or in Denver this year, he's always had one of the lowest target rates over the field or over the middle of the field. So when they leave the middle of the field open, he can't take advantage of it. And since Brandon Staley was so successful, we see this whole shift in the way that defenses are playing now, where a lot more defenses are playing two high shells. And that's what's you know really not allowing Russell Wilson to do well. Yeah, and the the dumb thing about this game was Cus Bradley is the opposite of Brandon Saley. He's the epitome of the anti-Brandon Saley defense. And yet Russell, he he couldn't do anything, right? Like the Broncos um averaged a lower EPA per pass than they did EPA per rush. And both were in the negatives, mind you, right? And they couldn't move the ball at all. Like the fact that they they couldn't even score a touchdown on this Colts defense is is pretty sad and I mean Broncos were at home short week like I would typically give you know the Broncos the advantage here just because Russell Wilson has seen this defense for years he's gone against the Gus Bradley cover three defense every single year he's been in Seattle whether it's under Dan Quinn or Ken Nor Norton Jr. right and he still couldn't figure this defense out so Russ can't be too high he can't beat single high I, I mean, I don't even know what the answer is for, for the Broncos anymore. Yeah, no, that's, I know that's, that's such a good point. And like, 
this Broncos defense plays really hard. Like they do not deserve the offense that they're paired with. They rank third in EPA per play right now. And, you know, they kept the Colts out of the end zone uh, for the entire game. And they've like, they've just deserved better than, than they've been given. But, you know, when you have a negative 0.97 uh, EPA per play, on late downs in this game like that that just can't happen that's like shooting yourself in the foot so many times uh you know a crucial interception in a in a bad in a you know in a bad spot of the field and all that like caused the broncos to lose this game at home um when when they you know they really should have won it against the colts team that's been struggling yeah and the last thing from this game the colts offense also was pretty putrid um and one actionable takeaway is like I think we should be fading the Colts against teams that can do two things, either get an early lead, so do very well in scripted plays, or have just this elite defensive line that's going to take advantage of this bad Colts line. The Colts, you know, in their interior of that game was Quentin Nelson, Ryan Kelly, and Braden Smith to start. All five, all three of whose cap hit or APYs combined to be over $50 million, and yet they allowed 25 pressures to this Broncos D line, which is just absolutely absurd. So, you know, I, I'm not high on the Colts at all. Like I think, you know, Matt Ryan, there's some severe limitations and add that on to a pretty bad offensive line. And, you know, somehow they're still favored to win the AFC South, which I think is a, a market mispricing right there. Yeah. And yeah, the point about the the Colts offensive line is interesting because like the thing about, you know, drafting a, non-premium position in the top five like they did with Quinton Nelson is Quinton Nelson's a great player I love watching him I think he's done you know a lot for the Colts offense uh with back when they were good um but the lose-lose aspect of it is right when he's drafted his rookie contract is going to be a lot higher on the you know the the guard uh rankings of contracts compared to if you draft like a wide receiver or or an edge rusher and if they just play well, like they don't even have to be, uh, you know, like, like tier one, like they just have to play well, you have to give them a market shattering contract because they have, you know, they've given, they have the draft prior of being a top five pick and they have, you know, the production that has been pretty good. So it's kind of a lose, lose, you know, obviously it's like, it's like good for the Colts to have Quentin Nelson, but at the money that they're spending for him, when, you know, the rest of their offense is really struggling, it's just really interesting to look at there. Yeah, yeah. All right, we we spent too much time on this game that ended up twelve nine. Let's move on to more some more exciting games: Giants, Packers. Um, you know, London game, so pretty much a neutral game field. And man, like the the Packers, like what's what's going on there? Like what is what is, what is Aaron Rodgers and Matt Lafleur doing? What? Why don't you share? You know, your kind of like main takeaway from this game. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's so. If we start on the offensive side of the ball. Um, you know, Aaron Rodgers right now just doesn't want to throw the ball past five yards down the field. If you look at his heat map of targets this year, it's all red from the five yard line uh, inward. He has the most passes behind the line of scrimmage in the NFL, and he just doesn't trust any of his receivers because on third down, uh, defenses can just go into man coverage and mm-hmm. no one is going to beat you on the, the Packers offense right now. So that's the problem on, on that side of the ball. On the defense, though, is the part I've been really disappointed in. Um, you know, I came on this show on Twitter all throughout the offseason talking about how I thought the Packers had the most talented defense in the NFL. Um, and, you know, Ben Baldwin, I'll, I'll give him, you know, his his flowers here. I'll, I'll eat crow on this take um, because, you know, I, I, I can I, I can do that if, if something like that happens. But 
he was saying like, oh, they didn't rank that well last year. They ranked 21st in DVOA and defense is so hard to predict. Like we shouldn't be so confident the Packers defense will play well. And he's right, right? Like the Packers defense just doesn't communicate well, even though they've given up the second fewest passing yards in the NFL through the first five weeks, they've allowed the most yards of any defense on crossing routes. Um, so Mike Renner pointed this out. And I think you can see that when they play, they want to play a lot of quarters and they just don't pass off players well. And that's how you get so many players just running wide open as they cross across the field against them. Yeah, I know that that's such a good point. And to your, to go back to the Packers offense, I think like they've always been like a threes, a layup and threes type of offense. But I think we're really starting to see th- how much uh, Aaron Rodgers misses Devontae because Devontae was the was the mid range guy. He was the like the Devin Booker of this offense. You can he can go get you a bucket on third and seven, on third and eight. But now, I mean, every time I watch this Packers, the Packers throw the ball. It was a it was an RPO flat route or an RPO bubble screen or an RPO like slant route to like Randall Cobb or or Ro- or like Alan Lazard, right? And like. The problem with that is you have to be successful on every play, and one misstep is going to cost you a touchdown on that drive. One penalty sets you back 10 yards, and now you're in second and 15 or second and 16, and you don't have a deep threat. Like You don't have that intermediate game to get you that first down. So when you're that methodical and you don't have like the ability to create explosive plays, you're going to be inefficient more often than not, and you're going to stall at times. And I think that's what we saw this weekend against the Giants. Like When the Giants were stacking the box, like, Rodgers was 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 either chucking the ball deep against press coverage or getting it out quick to an incompletion. And on that third and two, fourth and two, I just don't understand the play call of throwing a back shoulder fade to freaking Alan Lazard. Like, even though the the ball got tipped, we saw what the play was, and it that's just not like that doesn't seem like a Lafleur or Aaron Rodgers play call. Yes, no, that's true. It's like Lafleur has been so good his first couple of years in Green Bay. Uh, he led all coaches and wins over expected coaching last year where, you know, it's it's coaching above what the talent is on your roster basically is what that is. And this year you can like in this game, especially you could see the difference between what Brian Dable was getting out of having a receiver core of Darius Slayton and a bunch of practice squad players uh, versus what Matt LaFleur was getting out of a receiving core that, you know, has Lazard, has Randall Cobb, like it has some juice to it, not like a ton, but it's just like, the, the Giants have shown that they can adjust based on the talent that they have on their roster. Wildcat is almost never successful in the NFL anymore, and they're making it work. Um, on Ben Brown's, you know, offensive clustering, where he used, you know, principal component analysis to uh, kind of reduce the amount of dimensions of, of NFL offenses and put it on like a 2D plane, he... The Giants are pretty far away from the Bills where Dable comes from. So they're doing all these different things. Daniel Jones had a 91st percentile EPA per play outcome in this game, which is crazy for him to do. So the the Giants coaching staff is doing all these things that the Packers coaching staff isn't doing. And they're just it's you can really see like who's maximizing their their lack of talent versus who's kind of minimizing the little talent that they have. Yeah, no, completely agree. And I, I've said this multiple times on Twitter, like the, the giant, the giants just fight. Like they might not be talented, but they like they're scrappy. That's why they're four and one. Like they've pulled out these close games because, you know, they, they play hard to the end. And I think Dable and Wink have gotten a good buy-in from the, from the roster, but let's move on to another exciting game. Uh, the Browns versus my Los Angeles chargers. And I think, I mean, we have to just talk about the, the fourth down decision and, we will get to like Justin Herbert and Nick Chubb and Austin Eckler later, but basically fourth and two from the minus 46, I believe one fourteen left Browns with no timeouts, get a first down game over. 
punt and Browns have to drive about 40, at least like 50 yards to get a field goal. But if you go for it and don't convert, Browns are pretty much in field goal range with one run or one pass, right? So we've gone back and forth on this and like I'm still, I just think this is a toss up. I don't think there's a, there's, it's a clear go. I don't think it's a clear punt, but the way I see it, like I, I think Ben Baldwin's model had this as a fourth and one when in reality it was more like a fourth and two. The fourth and two win probability to go was six percent. Um, I, I believe ESPN was near that as well, and then Next Gen Stats had this as, as a punt by like 02 percent. So the way I look at this is, you if you're the Chargers and you're going for it without Keenan Allen, and this is the big part. This is what I was harping on all Sunday. If you're going for it without Keenan Allen you can't be running a Keenan Allen play. And I think that's the problem. Like the Chargers fourth and two playbook is a key is throw it to Keenan Allen on a slant route after he wins his one-on-one -on -one versus man coverage. But Mike Williams in 2022 ranks in the ninth percentile in getting open versus single man coverage. He ranks in the eighth percentile in getting open versus single man coverage going back to 2020. So you, your playbook is already se severely condensed with no Keenan Allen. And so you're pretty much either running the ball with Austin Eckler or you're scheming someone open. And while I think Joe Lombardi called an absolutely dynamite game on Sunday, I, he's not the best at like getting people open on these type of downs, which, you know, I've seen on film. So if they had Keenan Allen, I would be totally fine going for it because you kind of know, like you have your reliable guy, but without Keenan, you're kind of limited in, in what you can do. So my other point is like, Staley said he trusted his defense and his punter against Patrick freaking Mahomes. And if you don't have that same faith in your defense when going against Jacoby Brissett, then I don't know what we're doing because I guess, you know, I get Joey Bosa is a big loss, but he's one piece, right? Like the rest of the defense is still intact. So that was just kind of my takeaway. What did you, what did you think about that fourth down decision? Yeah. So I think when you evaluate this and I like how you said, you know, it was, it was a close call either way, because that's what I, I think it was, I think, you know, 6% win probability is, is probably a little high. Um, when you approach these end of the game situations, there's two things, first of all, like end of game win probability models because of how, you know, little, like it, you know, all these situations happen at the end of the game are a little fluky to begin with. Um, so you have to like, be careful with that, but you also need to get a confidence interval instead of just a number, right? So like when you see a public fourth down model, they'll just give the number of the win probability that they expect for each decision. You need to give a range, right? You need to be like, it could be between negative 2% and 4%, which is what I think this chargers one would be if someone put that out there. And so what you're saying is you're leaning on the when it crosses below zero side of things because they didn't have Keenan Allen. But I would have gone for it because, first of all, you have a top five quarterback in the NFL. You should be able to get a yard and a half. Um, even if the, you know, like separating the play call aside, like the play call was bad. And um, and just like you can't you can't think about like what the play call is. You just have to think about the decision and like what you can do with that decision. The Browns have you know, probably the worst interior defensive line in the NFL right now. So I would have felt very confident in Austin Eckler getting a yard and a half run wise. I also would have felt confident in Austin Eckler getting some type of pass past the sticks. Like it didn't have to th be thrown to, to Mike Williams. There was other options there to throw it to that. So when you, when you have these other options to think about, uh, I, I would have gone for it because if, if Brandon Staley does trust his defense, like you brought up, 
he could be okay with failing this because the Browns were literally right outside of field goal range um, when when this decision was made, right? It was, it was being at the minus 40, which would have been a 57-yard field goal, which is a little too long for Cade York. So if you trust your defense, you can you can trust them enough to, you know, not let them get the five, 10 yards they need to have a better field goal range. And, you know, when it failed, that's what he did. But anytime you have the chance to end the game when your defense hasn't been playing well at all and could get burnt by Jacoby Brissett going down the field with a minute to go, I think you take that because I do think the Chargers had a greater than 50% chance to convert this fourth and one and a half and, you know, end the game right there instead of relying on um, their defense to do it. Yep. No, totally, totally understand that point. And I'm totally fine with being more aggressive. Um, I just think, you know, this was just, it, it was such a tense point in the game that any, like that if the Browns had won it, there would have been some serious talks about this decision, but, you know, thankfully it kind of worked out in the end. So we don't really have to uh, talk about, you know, Staley too much, but I guess the other points from this game, I mean, Austin Eckler and Nick Chubb had probably the best running back performance combined in a single game from by like a singular running back on both teams. Austin Eckler, uh, 76.8 rushing yards over expected by your uh, rushing yards over expected metric. And Nick Chubb was, you know, doing what he normally does. That 40 yard touchdown he scored on the opening drive was just, I mean, he stiff armed Derwin to the ground. He was breaking tackles all over the place. I think the Browns run game is, is the best we've seen in, in a, in a couple years at least. Yeah, no, that, that was great. And that's like, kind of like where the NFL is right now is like, all right, we're just going to have to rely on these run games. Like the gap between running and passing efficiency has just kind of, you know, gotten closer, like passing is still more efficient, but it's, it's got a lot closer. And like, doesn't it kind of just sum up like, yeah, like NFL offenses right now, because the, you know, the final score of this game was 30 to 28. And these were good offensive performances from both of these teams. Last year when they played, the Chargers won 47 to 42. So like we can see like just like it's a lot harder for offenses to just like do well right now. Um, and like this is kind of like, you know, the the top scoring that we're going to get from these types of offenses that aren't like tier one. Yeah. And I think this is a good segue into our next game, the, the Rams versus the Cowboys. And I think it's a good segue because last year, the Chargers Browns game had so many points scored because there were so many explosive plays through the air. Mm-hmm. And the Rams this year, if you use like Marcus Mosher's um, explosive play chart, the Rams have the least amount of explosive plays where whether it's 10 plus yard runs and or 20 plus yard throws. Like uh, obviously there's other ways of defining explosive plays, but the Rams have not been explosive at all this year. And I think part of that is the offensive line struggles. And, you know, I'm going to let you take it away since, you know, you're the Stafford guy here, but what have, what have you been seeing from Stafford? And like, what is, what are your, just your overall thoughts about the Rams um, offense in general? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I appreciate it. I don't know if I uh, might go on a little long here, but uh, yeah, it's, you know, Madison Stafford is, he's literally a crash test dummy right now back there. Like he just gets sent back there and destroyed on like half of his plays. And that's not even an exaggeration. They were pressured on 46% of their dropbacks on Sunday. And uh, Stafford has, has taken 21 sacks this year, which is the most in the NFL. And we know like quarterbacks control a lot of their pressure rate and their sack rate year to year. But when you have this big of a drop off in offensive line talent, this starts to become a major offensive line problem and not a quarterback problem. Um, you know, Stafford is on pace right now to take over 80 sacks. And he's only taken over 40 sacks twice in his 14 years in the NFL. 
So like, it's, it's, it's not something that, you know, he's really able to get out of. Um, I just think that when, you know, going back to the offensive clustering uh, graph that we were talking about earlier, when you look at the uniqueness in offensive schemes right now, Sean McVay's offense falls right in the middle. It's the least unique offense in the NFL because so many teams have tried to emulate what Sean McVay has done. And because of that, so many defenses have been built to stop a Sean McVay type offense. And so what you get with that is when you don't innovate enough as, you know, the person that everyone's trying to copy, you're going to get an offense like this where it doesn't, it can't overcome its talent deficit. Like Kyle Shanahan is able to overcome his bad offensive line that doesn't have Trent Williams right now and is starting a bunch of rookies in the interior and all that stuff. Sean McVay is not able to stop it. Uh, but I, I do think that the Rams will be okay in the long term. I just think that having the best defensive line in the NFL and the second best defensive line in the NFL and the 49ers and Cowboys, whatever order you want to go with that, was just an awful matchup for them. And, you know, the, the Stafford to cup connection is still the best connection in the league. So they'll be fine there, but they missed on Allen Robinson and you were on a house of cards. Like you couldn't afford to do that. And when you pluck that one Allen Robinson card out from the bottom, the whole thing kind of falls apart. And that's what the Rams offense is right now. Yeah, no, that analysis was awesome. Um, and yeah, just the offensive line drop off was, it's been so mind blowing this year. I, you know, I think we do, sh we should give some credit to the Dallas defense. Um, you had a point in our, in our notes about how the Cowboys have the highest stunt rate in the NFL. In my stunt rate over expected metric I built like uh, about a year ago, Dallas has had the highest stunt rate over expected in like four out of the five years if, since like 2021 to like 2017 or something. So they obviously have some type of thing where they like to stunt. And this is not just a Dan Quinn thing. Like this happened under uh Chris Richard so you know Dallas has beaten up on bad offensive lines this year and that's what they did this week against the Los Angeles Rams and Cooper Rush moving to what five five and oh now and five and oh against the spread so just just an absolute privilege to, to watch but um you know Micah Parsons I think is plus 100 to win defensive player of the year so it kind of tells you about the season he's having which you know is he was playing with a hurt groin and still had two sacks this week. So absurdly impressive performance by him. I guess the last question from here is like Rams are minus 132 to make the playoffs plus 116 to miss the playoffs. Where do you see them ending up by the end of the season? Yeah, I, I do think they make the playoffs because the NFC is so weak and their schedule kind of lightens up from, from what it's been. Um, You know, they get the Panthers this week. So they'll be three and three going into their bye, And like, that's really when, you know, things need to be changed. We saw the Chiefs last year. Their offense was never this bad, not even close. But they were struggling at times, went into the bye. You know, Andy Reid adjusted. They came out and they played well. So I do think we end up seeing that with Sean McVay. And, you know, maybe the Rams, like, either trade or sign some offensive lineman that can kind of, like, hold hold their own. So I, I do think they'll, they'll end up making the playoffs in the end, but it's going to be pretty close. Yeah, and I think the one actionable takeaway from this game is we have to downgrade the Rams when they go against the defense with a very talented defensive line. And I was going to say Carolina kind of has that thing, but I think it's just Brian Burns over there right now. So, um, but yeah, that's going to be obviously a thing to watch when they play the Niners again and, and when they play other talented defensive fronts. But let's go to Ravens-Bengals Sunday Night Football. You know, a, a pretty interesting game, entertaining game. Um, and I have to say, like, I think my take on the Bengals was 
you're yeah. kind of spot on from last week. So if you didn't listen to last week's episode, basically I said the biggest takeaway I had from Dolphins Bengals was the Bengals offense is going to have a significant drop off if T Higgins or Jamar Chase ever get injured and they're not able to play. And it's only one of them on the field. So T Higgins played the first drive, you know, kind of just stood there on the sidelines and he got ruled out with a hamstring or like some type of injury. What we saw was the Bengals put up 17 points. Joe Burrow averaged a 0.00 EPA per play. His A dot was 3.8, which is just, you know, not a, a Bengals-esque type A dot. And the Bengals were so reliant on these checkdowns, which, you know, was the answer to for them to beating too high. But you kind of see the limitations of not having these two elite receivers. And Tyler Boyd isn't like he he's still reliable, but he's not like a true wide receiver two. Like he's good in a wide receiver three role, but he can't, I don't think he can elevate himself into a wide receiver two role. So you know, the, the Ravens were able to key in on Chase, seven receptions for like 30-something yards. That's just not a Chase-esque line. So I think you're seeing the Bengals all out of sorts this season. And obviously the two highs affected them, which, again, we have been saying all summer. So I think our Bengals takes have kind of looked good so far. And, um, you know, I, I wonder if you've thought the same thing as well. Yeah, no, you definitely deserve your victory laps about all your Bengals takes uh, this season, starting in the summer with the Bengals just regression in general. And then the T Higgins take uh, last week that that worked out perfectly. And I think that Joe Burrow has to actually go back to being more aggressive. Um, you know, he took 10 sacks in the first two weeks, which was like, which was bad, but he was doing that last year. He led the league in sacks last year because that allowed him to buy time for Chase to get uh, 20, 25 yards downfield for the, that go ball connection that they have. Um, in these past three weeks, he's taken three sacks total and only seven pressures got on the, the, you know, him last week. And you can't have, if, if you're going to be an offense that's built off explosive plays, you're going to have to also, you know, deal with the other side of that. And, you know, that widens the range of outcomes when you hold on to the ball longer and it's great when you're not pressured, but it's bad when you're pressured. And he just has to get better about that. Like, don't don't take the check down so soon when you're not pressured and then do take it when you're pressured. It's, it, I mean, it sounds simple, like when, you know, just sitting here, but like that's like something that's been been studied. And, um, you know, the fact that the Bengals were able to run the ball, they had a 0.14 EPA per rush. But since they couldn't pass well, and they struggled in the red zone sequence with the two gadget plays where you need gadget players to run gadget plays. Like you need a Taysom Hill to be able to do stuff like that, where you do like the end around or like the, the tight end um, shovel pass or whatever. It's, it's like, it was, it was like, you can kind of see the limitations that Zach Taylor has that this offense has without T Higgins and um, you know, and the, the kind of the effect of, kind of coming down from a team that was so reliant on big plays last year. Yeah. And I think the flip side to it is like, we kind of saw what the Ravens defense was supposed to look like. I think there's a lot of things to clean up penalties and, and missed tackles by Patrick queen, but they looked like, the, and you had a great tweet about this. This game was the epitome of why the Ravens hired Mike McDonald and moved on from Wink Martindale and that forcing Joe Burrow to have a 3.8, a dot playing too high. I think over right around 60% of their snaps were in cover two, four, and six, which is what you exactly should be doing against the Bengals. They played like seven snaps, like I think like 11 or 12% of cover one against the Bengals on passing play. So they did everything they're supposed to on defense. Now it's just cleaning, cleaning up some of them, those mistakes. But on the offensive side of the ball, like 
I think Lamar didn't have his greatest game, missed on a couple deep throws. But when it came to the crunch time, I mean, he couldn't be tackled. He got the Ravens in field goal range so easily. It was like never a doubt. And once I crossed the 50, I was like, okay, I'm just going to, you know, I can turn this game off and wake up tomorrow <laughs> morning and know that the Ravens won because they have Justin Tucker. Oh, uh, yeah, no, we need to talk about Tucker. <laughs> like for him to, so first of all, so like Timo Riske, our, our, our friend, uh, has has it did this really deep dive into kickers last year. Like, go check it out. It was it was awesome into all the factors, weather, clutchness, all that stuff. He found that Justin Tucker has about zero point two five wins above replacement a year. So if you if you just got signed a random kicker off the street like the Lions just did last week, Justin Tucker would add a fourth of a win above him. And that doesn't seem like a lot on face value, but not many players can get that high, right? Like this is like 0.25 wins in PFF's war model is like a pretty good receiver, a pretty good edge rusher, like those types of players. So he would be, you know, uh, most non-quarterbacks, like, you know, round fifth, most important player, you know, excluding quarterback on a lot of teams rosters. And for him to have, you know, a dead center kick that goes right down the middle um, you know, where if the goalposts were, you know, a foot long, it would have still gone in instead of, you know, however wide they are after, you know, Thomas Bliss, who was on the show uh, during the summer, talked about how he not only does he make the most kicks in the NFL, he also um, has the, you know, the the lowest average distance from the center of the field goal post is just so impressive. And it's so cool how they're just so confident in like how he'll go up each time and make the kick. Yeah, it was cool to see Michael Lopez's tweet get like retweeted by the NFL account yeah. and to get like spread out. And just a quick like, you know, I, you know, just to correct, it's Thompson, not Thomas, just because I think he corrected us before. I just want to make sure we're saying his name right. So oh, it's Thompson Bliss goes by Tom Bliss. Um, but yeah, very, very fun game, Ravens Bengals. But now probably the the most exciting game of the week, Raiders Chiefs. You know, we'll wrap it up with this before we move on to our awards. So I think. Last week we had our discussion about the Raiders and their offense. I think you were, you were kind of right. Um, the Raiders' offense did look pretty good. They did a very good job on the scripted plays. Jumped out to a quick fourteen nothing lead. Uh, Devonte that fourth and one deep shot to Devonte Adams was was beautiful. Like that's that's like such a ballsy play call, calling a play action like deep shot on fourth and one where you have six offensive linemen, but. Josh McDaniels called it, Derek Carr delivered and and ended up a touchdown. But what ensued after that from Josh McDaniels was was an absolute privilege, a primetime prip. <laughs> he kicks for it. He kicks on fourth and one, uh, which obviously it went in. And then he goes for two with four minutes left. So just, you know, without any analysis, I think going for two there, regardless if they got it or not, was the wrong decision. Do you agree or do you disagree? I agree also, yes. Yeah. So I think the the explanation here is, is a little bit tricky because you don't really have a lot of situations where um, a team is is down one with four minutes left um, and, you know, they're going for two there. I think the 538 chart said you have like a less than 50 percent chance to convert that. So you sh technically should be kicking there. But I think like in these type of situations, you need a manual adjustment for the Chiefs. And just from a theoretical standpoint, the way I see it is this, like you're going to need to stop anyway, like in, in each scenario. But if you go for it and get it and you go up one, the Chiefs are playing with four downs. The, the likelihood that you stop the Chiefs on four downs is incredibly difficult. 
if you kick it and you convert and it's a tie game, the Chiefs are playing with three downs. And the chance that they run it on first down and waste it down with Clyde Edwards-Hilaire is, is much more likely. So you want to try to force the Chiefs to be more conservative and play with one less down, which is what I think tying the game would have done. And like to be fair, like like and to your credit, like the Raiders' offense was looking good. The Chiefs' offense or defense couldn't really stop them. You were most likely going to get in field goal range, and Daniel Carlos, Carlson is, is nails. So I think they should have tied the game just you know, hope for a stop, hope that Max Crosby and Chandler Jones could have got through. And then you get the ball back with probably less than two minutes or even like less like around three minutes, depending on how the Chiefs drive went. And then from there, you can, you know, design your your drive to get in, within field goal range with like less than 10 seconds left. And you walk out of Arrowhead with a W. But instead, they go for it, fail. And, you know, they walk out of there with as losers. So, um what is your do you have the same kind of analysis there? Yeah, no, that was that was perfect. You basically summarized everything that I wanted to say. And yeah, no, I think the four downs thing is huge. Like if you kick the extra point and you tie the game, the Chiefs are having this backup kicker, like a guy again, like off the street, like a replacement level kicker. If you have the game tied, they probably, if they get stopped on third down, they probably attempt a field goal. And Andy Reid, you know, is usually pretty conservative. He has been this year too. They kick a field goal with a kicker that doesn't have a high probability of making the kick, you know, basically wherever it is on the field, like it could be anywhere. Um, so I, I I don't know why you'd want to make the Chiefs more aggressive, but the part that, you know, really got me going is the fact that, you know, the announcers and, um, and you know, all the analysis today thought that that was an analytics decision when it wasn't an analytics call. It was just a Josh McDaniels decision. Right. Like it was he he was the one deciding to to do that. He wanted to be aggressive there and, you know, maybe set a tone because his team was one and three, all that stuff. And, uh, you know, Mike Golick Jr. had a really good point that said, you know, before like everyone starts blowing up, you know, analytics departments, we need to actually know what their model said. Right. Like analytics, people don't get interviewed after the game. And it's become such a scapegoat for coaches to just say the analytics told me to do that after every decision that doesn't work out. So, you know, I don't know what the Raiders model said, but it wouldn't have been a strong lean towards go for two or kick the extra point like it would have been if they were, say, let's like down eight, where it would have been a very strong lean to go for two. There would have been no, you know, strong lean in either direction there. So it was just it was purely up to Josh McDaniel's discretion to go for the two point conversion. Yeah, I totally agree. And the, the analytics hate was a, was a little mush on Sunday and especially on Monday night. But um, just to wrap up on this game, I mean, there are some actionable takeaways from the Raiders offense and the Chiefs offense. Like the Chiefs offense is so good. The fact that they can just put up 30 points in three quarters is just so annoying, especially as a Chargers fan where I've seen this happen multiple times. But no lead is safe with the Chiefs. And, you know, we're going to shout out our friend Judah Fort Gang at Throw the Damn Ball on Twitter. Like the, the Raiders have one of the worst offenses in the NFL under the Derek Carr era when playing with the lead or when when on offense and having a above 70% win probability. Mm -hmm. So the Raiders struggle to extend leads like like a team like the Bills do. And they just let the Chiefs back in the game. And I think, honestly, it comes from the fact that Josh McDaniels kicked a field goal on fourth and one. It was like, exactly those, like what, the, what the Texans did against the Chiefs. Yeah, ex exactly. Game, when they exactly went up 0 yeah. And you know, those four points that you potentially could have converted into a touchdown could have come handy, right? Now that you lost, I mean, losing by one versus losing by four, 
I mean, we would have covered our teaser, but, you know, it's, oh. we're not going to talk about that. But, um, you know, well, actually, no, there's butterfly effects there. But but still, like, the Raiders' offense is very, I think, pretty solid. I, I take back what I said. I think, But I think Josh McDaniels, as a decision maker, has kind of held back the Raiders in, in this week and in previous weeks. So, you know, the, the Raiders' defense is as bad as we thought it was, or maybe the Chiefs' offense is that good. My, Max Crosby is him. Um, but outside of that, I don't really see a lot of talent on that defense and weirdly or not weirdly enough. I was actually happy that they kind of like listened to my recommendation or took or did what I recommended last week, which is like, you kind of have to play man Mm -hmm. on the chiefs a little bit. But the problem with the the Raiders is like, it's good that they played man, but they don't have any talent to play man. So they're not the team I would recommend to play man because they don't have a talent advantage on the outside, but um, I think you saw the, the Chiefs struggle a little bit when the receivers couldn't separate early in the first quarter. But after that, I mean, Andy started calling the good plays and uh, Chiefs walk out, walk out of there with a dub. Yeah. And I think like the yeah, like the thing about separations here is like the Chiefs don't rank pretty highly in any separation metric you use right now. But that's like been like something that's like impressed me with Mahomes is like be, before this season, Mahomes was um the top in every single quarterback metric except any accuracy stat right like any stat you want to use pffs accuracy charting uh completion percentage over expected all that stuff he would be still ranking highly but not good and you could just see his accuracy on display in this game he was just throwing darts to these receivers that barely had a yard of separation and you know that that was like the difference between um, you know, him and like Derek Carr in this game, for example, it was like Carr played really well. Like the jump pass he had for the Devontae Adams oh, yeah. were sweet, but Mahomes was just a bit better on every single throw. And that added up for the Chiefs to win this game. Yeah. And that's not surprising. Right? Yeah. No, not surprising, but you could just see the difference there displayed. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, that, that kind of wraps it up for our week five a review we'll head into our who was him awards and, and wrap it up with the unhinged tweet after this pro teams have millions to spend and they don't always spend them wisely but when it comes to a great shave you don't have to shell out tons of cash harry's saw customers getting ripped off by the shaving industry with overpriced underperforming products and decided to do something better they found their own way to make beautifully designed razors for a fraction of the price of the other big brands, so you never wonder if you overpaid. Harry's shaving products look great, and the weighted handle makes shaving feel great too. I like to keep my beard neat, and Harry's always leaves me with a smooth yet crisp shave. Harry's quality is top-notch, thanks to German-engineered blades made in their own factory that stay sharp longer. You can get a five-blade razor, weighted handle, foaming shave gel, and a travel cover for just three bucks at harrys.com slash bluewire. And Harry's has the highest customer satisfaction in the shaving industry, plus a convenient subscription option that you can cancel at any time. Getting the best doesn't mean spending the most when you shave with Harry's. Get started with a $13 trial set for just $3 at harrys.com slash bluewire. That's harrys.com slash bluewire for a $3 trial set. You are not him. You are not him. Told a bitch I'm him, quit playing. Tryna ride with a boss, what bitch get in. Try stay on the road like the Michelin man. Put an M on your head like a Michigan fan. We will now do our awards from the past week, doing our Who Was Him segment and also our letdowns. And then we're also going to bring back the Unhinged Tweet of the Week (laughs) this week. Yeah. (laughs) So uh, let's start off with Who Was Him. So Jack Jones, uh, Patriots defensive back. 
Uh, Belichick has done it again. Um, he, you know, got rid of JC Jackson. People were questioning the decision. Uh, Jackson has not been playing well, as you pointed out. Uh, you know, what is your coverage uh, grade over expected showed? Yeah. So before joining the Chargers, it was like barely negative, but it's been like really bad. He's like at like a negative 8% coverage, successful coverage over expected, mm-hmm. which is near the bottom of the league in 2022. Yeah. And then, you know, Jack Jones is PFF's highest graded corner right now. Um, he had a pick six last week off Aaron Rodgers, who, you know, basically never throws interceptions. And then, uh, you know, pretty insane, like sideline toe tap interception this week that changed the whole tides in the Lions game. So I've been really, really impressed with his play so far. Yeah, there's something with Belichick and drafting corners with the initials JJ, like <laughs> JC Jackson, Jonathan Jones, who's been a pretty mm-hmm. good corner. And then Jack Jones now, who's probably going to be the next like all pro corner that Bill Belichick finds. Oh, yeah. Right. Um, so my first guy, Austin Eckler, I, I have to give props where it's due. I thought after the first couple of weeks, Eckler looked a little bit washed. I thought, you know, he, he was one of the lowest, um, rushers in terms of your, in your rushing yards over expected, but this week he had 76.8 rushing yards over expected, which included like a 70 yard run where he got hawked down from behind. But the thing that's was so impressive to me is like, he showed like his vision, his vision came back. He was breaking tackles, like the the early Austin Eckler days, the first contract Austin mm-hmm. Eckler. And he, I mean, when healthy he does add a very dynamic um, factor to this Chargers offense. And like with running the ball becoming slightly more important this year, it's important that the Chargers have some sort of um, weapon in the running game. And I think Austin Eckler definitely proved that he can be that guy this year again. Yeah. I mean, yeah, he had, you know, over 10 EPA, more EPA than Herbert did, which was huge uh, in that game, which you almost never see nowadays. So that was, that was pretty big for the Chargers to get that win there. Uh, another, you know, uh, guy who deserves a him award is Brian Dable, yeah. who everyone's talking about right now, but he still needs appreciation on this show. Uh, the, the Giants already have as many wins in five weeks than they did all of last year. Uh, you know, he's really getting the most out of this offense, right? So like, I don't want to use this year's PFF grades because uh, he might be coaching them up to be better. But last year they ranked 31st from the quarterback position, uh, 29th in pass blocking, 30th in receiving, 28th in rushing and 21st in run blocking. So basically bottom 10 or even bottom five in every single metric that you could be last year talent wise. And he has just gotten a ton out of a, you know, quarterback who wasn't considered that good uh, receiving group that's missing most of their top receivers that aren't even that good anyways. And, you know, to, to be able to be four and one, whether it's a fluky four and one or not, you can see that the team is getting a lot better. And that's been what's really been impressive. Yeah. And it's not like the Giants had any cap space from this past offseason to go out and make any moves. I mean, pretty much the only offensive move they made was John Feliciano on that offensive line, I think. Mm-hmm. Like, otherwise, it was like cutting a bunch of players that had done nothing for them. So, yeah, definitely appreciate Dable. And there's a reason that he was one of the hottest head coaching candidates out there. Um, my second him award goes to Stephon Gilmore. Um, you know, Gilmore was kind of like a value signing late in the offseason by the Colts. I mean, I thought he had one of the best games of, of the season for, for any cornerback. Uh, picked off uh, Russell Wilson on, I believe, third and four. Which, it, first of all, Wilson should never have thrown a ball to, in, to Gilmore's direction on third down, especially when he's guarding Tyree freaking Cleveland, <laughs> a, a fourth, the fourth receiver in that wide receiver room, or it could be even fifth. But he goes out fourth and one, locks down um, Cortland Sutton on a on a crossing route, 
and kind of proves that like it while uh coverage can be a weak link unit at times in high leverage situations having an, a shutdown number one who can take away the other team's number one option is is always valuable mm-hmm. yeah i know that, that interception was was really game changing and especially in a game where it, any points possible would have helped to get that that pick was huge and yeah it was cool for for gilmore to do well uh and my last one is josh allen um i love this tweet from spencer hall where he said Josh Allen has 348 yards and four touchdowns at the half against the Steelers. He didn't even have that much in his best full game in his final year in college against Gardner Webb. So, you know, that shows two things, you know, how good Josh Allen is playing right now and how bad he used to be. And it's just crazy that he, you know, has been able to just elevate to, you know, really like literally unstoppable. Like there was 20 mile per hour wind. Uh, You're playing against the Steelers who came out last year and just, you know, spammed cover two against yeah. you and destroyed your yeah. offense. And this was like the game for them to just prove like, oh, like there's literally nothing you can do to stop us right now. And I thought it was really funny. We were on a meeting yesterday with um, some other some other people and someone was talking about Josh Allen. They said, oh, that incredible throw to Gabe Davis. And someone else said, what incredible throw to Gabe Davis. <laughs> like there's multiple of them yeah. that he did. So it was it was really cool to just just see him, you know, play so well and even more excited for that chiefs bills game this week then yeah i totally forgot that this like heading into this week that the steelers beat the bills last year yeah. and i i should have i should have figured that out like when in my betting like in my betting picks where like oh maybe bills minus 14 like that's a lot of points but like maybe it's not like too many points yeah. those are going to come out angry as hell um and yeah josh allen's been mvp front runner easily um i feel like i'm cheating here with my last award but i have to go with justin jefferson again I mean, 12 catches for 154 yards. Granted, it is on the Bears, no Jalen Johnson, but Jefferson had like 120 yards in the first half alone. Nine first down catches, which was by far the most um, in the NFL this week. The dude, I think, is honestly at this point, I wouldn't even like mind people saying he's better than Devontae Adams. Mm -hmm. Like, I think he's just genuinely unguardable um, and you can't he has to start getting like the Jamar Chase treatment or even like the Travis Kelsey treatment where you have to start doubling him and you can't be, you can't have that much confidence in your corner to lock him up one-on-one. Cause I think at this point it's impossible. So, you know, he's kind of the reason I would say that the Vikings are four and one and he's the reason that Kirk cousins is, you know, performing at the level he's doing. He is right now. Yeah. I think, I do think Justin Jefferson is the most important non quarterback on offense right now in the NFL. Uh, you know, just like, the way he was able to take over the Saints game in the second half last week and then take over the Bears game in the first half this week was really impressive. I think he had more receiving yards uh, than Bears had passing oh, yards for yeah. most of the game until yeah. like the fourth quarter, which is which is awesome. Uh, okay, so letdowns going the other direction. Uh, you know, players and coaches from the past weekend who disappointed, and that's what we usually do, right? Players and coaches, yeah. but I have to, you know, bring up the referees and just like, you know, the NFL officiating in general. Uh, you know, I've I've stopped complaining about the refs as much as I used to do when I was younger because like the lions will, you know, have a big call that goes against them basically every year. And like, I just got like, you know, numb to, to it, but seeing like what Falcons fans had to go through on Sunday and what chiefs fans had to go through on Monday night, where you get this big stop uh, in the chiefs case, you get the ball and the there's a roughing the passer call when the defender literally couldn't have done anything to prevent themselves from you know uh falling on the quarterback or like just like not even just exerting full force like what they did and then you know brady even tried to kick grady jarrett when they're on the ground and like that video went pretty viral 
and the roughing the passer is what got called in that end of the game for the Falcons. And, uh, you know, not just roughing a pa- roughing the passer aside, like you still have the underthrown uh, pass that causes that gets defensive pass interference working like crazy, which shouldn't be a thing. Uh, so like the, the, you know, the NFL product is really good and like no one will ever stop watching because of the referees, but it does like hurt each game a little bit when the refs either mess up or there's just like a dumb rule that causes something to, to feel off and like not give a true win to a team. Yeah. I a hundred percent agree. And I, the Derek Carr underthrown default was just in full effect yesterday. And I, I agree. Like, I don't think anyone's going to stop watching, but there has to be some sort of change, whether it is like, like allowing teams or the NFL to review penalties more often, mm-hmm. even though that might, that might prolong the games. Like I think people would rather have longer games that are better officiated. So some type of um, resolution there would be great. And as someone who was sitting on a Chris Jones to record a sack at plus 275, I was definitely, oh. uh, me and Ben Brown were kind of pissed that mm-hmm. um, they took that away, but you know, we, we move forward. Um, my biggest letdown is was Jared Goff. Um, the description we have for this award is good players and coaches. And I don't know if I categorize Jared Goff as good, but he has been performing like pretty solidly this year. But he, in this game against Belichick, he had a fourth percentile EPA per play performance. I think he averaged negative 0.5. Belichick, I mean, I, I don't know why I, I ever thought Lions really had a shot in this game. Like <laughs> Belichick owns Jared Goff to an extent. And um, just wasn't just wasn't the guy that we we were seeing the first couple of games of the year. You got blanked by, you know, a, a secondary that's that's okay this year. Like Belichick somehow is giving the Patriots a top 10 defense per EPA per play. But still, like this is like you had a Monroe playing. I know he's kind of on a snap count, but you go from putting 45 on the Seahawks and like 35 or 38 on the commanders to getting blanked by, you know, the Patriots on the road. It's, it's just not it's just not it. And it kind of shows the limitations of having Goff as a quarterback, I think. Yeah, no, for sure. And yeah, no, I'm glad you brought him up because something I wrote up for PFF.com before this game was I liked all of his under props <laughs> uh, passing wise yeah. because his success rate was below average while having, you know, a top 10 EPA per play because there was a lot of fluky production. I thought that was happening there. And you're going up against Belichick, who's just destroyed you every time yeah. you played against him. Uh, you know, the infamous defensive game plan of the Super Bowl. Uh, and your golf outdoors doesn't play well. Like yeah. that's like kind of been something that's carried with him throughout his career. So it's the combination of all of those coming together to to make for a very poor performance for him. But you know, as we get into our unhinged tweet here, something even more poor that you can say is Bill Simmons uh, saying in 2022, an NFL head coach would jump out a floor, fourth floor window because analytics say it's faster than taking the stairs. And so this was in reference to the decision that we talked about earlier in the show with the Raiders, uh, you know, going for two instead of kicking the extra point uh, with four minutes to go against the Chiefs when they were down one. And Bill Simmons is wrong here for a lot of reasons. One, a lot of coaches still don't listen to analytics. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. exactly. <laughs> like, I don't think he realizes that Andy Reid on the next drive punted on a fourth and one. two or th- oh, yeah. two. Fourth yeah. and two. Fourth and fourth two. And two when it was, you know, a, a pretty strong go opportunity and could have basically ended yeah. the game right there. And so he's not listening to the analytics, you know, and in that sense, you know, coaches are still, while they've gotten better at going for it on fourth down, they're still not going for it on fourth down. The other issue is, you know, what we've already talked about where it wasn't an analytics decision to go for it, uh, go, go for two there in that situation. It was a Josh McDaniels decision. Yeah. The funny part about that, I mean, we talked about it earlier, but like, Andy Reid scoring 30 points in three quarters and not trusting Mahomes to get two yards is just <laughs> incredible. 
But but yeah, like I think the the main point here is like he's saying coaches would jump out a fourth floor window. Like coaches still don't listen to analytics, right? Like they're mm-hmm. still making suboptimal decisions. Obviously, you're never gonna get a team or a coach that goes for it 100 percent of the time when they should go for it. And obviously, there's other extraneous factors like you know sometimes you don't have a good play call on on that given play, or maybe you know the play call doesn't come in in a given uh, situation, but. But yeah, it's it's funny that you know Simmons tweeted this out when it was just the complete opposite that happened in that game. Yeah, and it's not even fourth downs specifically, yeah. right? It's like just a lot of things that teams do that you know analytics people preach on. Like you don't you don't have to do all of them. Like that's not what we're saying to do. It's just we're just saying if you want to give yourself a one or two percent edge in this area, you know, call a play action on second and ten instead of a run. Yeah. Uh, you know, do different stuff like that that can that can give you an edge uh, in in certain areas. And like, that's, that's what all analytics is. Um, and you know, the whole, the entire discourse around this was just really bad. Like Pat McAfee had a clip that Ben Baldwin tweeted where he was saying like, oh, if you know, you have a 75% conversion probability, he's like, no one ever talks about the 25%. He's like, that's very often that mm-hmm. 25% happens, <laughs> all that type of stuff. And yeah, like whenever you play a coverage as a defensive coordinator, it has a X percent chance of working out, but no one calls for defensive coordinators to get fired often whenever they play the wrong coverage. So when, yeah. you know, a, a coach makes a decision that is so like publicly, you know, shamed, it's, it's just kind of crazy to me. Yeah. I think the, I mean, there was a ton of analytics crap that happened over the weekend. And I mean, we could go on for an hour about just like all the tweets that, that came out about the analytics community. But I think at the end of the day, like, the smart people know that like analytics is obviously a helpful tool. And while it isn't the end all be all, the coaches that embrace it will probably end up more successful than the coaches that don't. And the owners, especially that embrace it, mm-hmm. like, like the Ravens do or, or the Browns do, I think they'll find themselves in, in more success and have a higher appreciation for, for data and, and other analytics tools than than others that don't. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. And yeah, so like with the the big data bowl coming out, this is you know the last thing I I wanted to talk about here. Um, it's you know it's it, the big data bowl has like provided a lot of things that that teams can use. Um, you know the the most famous I think being like the rushing yards over expected metric that is both public and used by teams to evaluate running backs. Um, but you know there's there's been a lot of a lot of useful information for it. So for those who don't know, the big data bowl is a competition hosted by the NFL every year uh, with prize money, you know, $100,000 worth of prize money. If you, um, you know, place in the competition, you get a share of that. And basically what it is, is there are chips in every player and the ball. Um, even though some people will say like, sometimes like, why can't there be a chip in the ball? There is a chip in the ball. Uh, and it tracks where every player and the ball is every 10th of a second on the field. So it becomes this really long data set uh, with with you know every player's location, their direction, their speed, acceleration, all the stuff that you would want, um, and it updates pretty often throughout a play. And so, what this competition is is this year, it's going to be how can we evaluate trench play using uh, the tracking data that we have access to. Yeah. So, um, I mean, I personally haven't competed, like sent an actual submission. I've worked with tracking data before done some of the tutorials uh with uh thanks to tom bliss who uh, we've had on the podcast before but but yeah I'm, I'm super excited to see what comes out of this because i think like they're the one of the hardest things to quantify is like offensive line play like pff grades are, are kind of like the only public metric outside of like 
pass block and run run block win rate, which, you know, both have their technicalities and their own that, you know, we, we're not going to get too much into. But I think this could be a really good stepping stone into, you know, evaluating offensive line play better, defensive line play better, play better on the player level and on the team level mm-hmm. where we could see different schemes or different types of stunts or twists that may, you know, show that it's super successful and it could have a high success rate in, uh, in creating a pressure or like a really low EPA for the offense. And so I'm, I'm pretty excited to see what comes out of it, even if, you know, our team doesn't, you know, place or anything. I'm still excited to learn more about football in a, in a position where, you know, no one really talks about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I, I love those ideas. And like for anyone listening out there that's debating whether or not they should do it, uh, you know, my freshman year of, sorry, my sophomore year of college, um, I had only been coding, you know, for a couple months and the big data bowl came out and, uh, you know, in between like classes and, uh, and, you know, just different stuff like that. I like didn't have like a ton of like time I set aside to do it. So over winter break, you know, right before it was due, I just like scrambled together some basic classifier for, you know, uh, predicting which coverage a team ran based on how their players moved throughout the play. And, you know, it was really tough to work with tracking data. Like it took me a lot of time to figure it out to get there, but like it clicks for you eventually. And like, that's what happened with me. And when Ben Baldwin made a thread about, you know, his favorite big datable submissions, my basic submission like got put in that thread. And like, I was like, actually pretty proud of that. I was like, even like, I felt pretty bad when I submitted it. And it was just like kind of cool to see that there was actually some useful information in my submission that got put out there. So even if, you know, you haven't been coding that long or you're, you know, you're worried about working with tracking data, um, you know, because it's, it's, you know, kind of known for being difficult, like just like put something out there, even if it's going to be one graph or one paragraph about what you find with tracking data. Uh, there's, there's a lot of tutorials out there on Kaggle that you can use. And it would be really cool. Like you said, Arjun, like to see what types of submissions people put out. Yeah. And again, like obviously winning should be, or winning for the most part is like the end goal in all of this, but um, you know, there's no, there's no shame in, in just putting out a submission that, that you just, you know, threw together at the end. Like, I think some people do that, but, um, I think one of the advice I got from other people, and I think like it's, it's free to share. Cause like most people get this advice is like, don't just limit yourself to like reading about football. I think mm-hmm. like you can expand your, your, um, reading about certain sports like soccer or basketball where like spatial, um, distance mm-hmm. and stuff is, is kind of like a big thing so you can apply those uh techniques whether it is in, in like regression or these like big xg boost models to football as well so i think there's a lot of different routes you guys can go with this i'm pretty excited to see what you know we come up with in our group and to see what other people come up with and who knows like you know one of these submissions that might be yours or or someone else's could end up being used by a team if if people like it so definitely a lot of upside here and no no harm in, in just throwing out a submission and competing Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love the other sports, uh, you know, point like that's that's very important. And yeah, quickest way, easiest way to get noticed by a team is to buy by competing in the big data ball. Every every yeah. analytics person, on every team looks at it. But that's all we have for this episode. Uh, we will be back on 
Friday morning uh, for you guys. Now we'll be doing the two episodes a week like we talked about at the beginning of the episode. And that will be a preview of week six. And we'll be giving out the bets that we like in that episode as well. So be on the lookout for that. Really excited about doing two episodes uh, here on out and, you know, making sure that there's no more complaints about the long episodes like we had earlier. So thanks for listening, everyone. Uh, Until then, I'll take the points.